So very good to see everyone. Lots of friends in the room. And uh, thank you, Fitzhugh, for providing a talk last week. Um, two weeks ago, we were exploring the first part of this theme having to do with selflessness and working with this sense of self and how and why reflecting on our identity, reflecting on our sense of self is relevant or irrelevant for the spiritual path. And uh, I wasn't here last week, but KT and I were in karma trolling, having misadventures uh, in creating enlightened society, <laughs> and um, had quite an interesting time in Vermont. Um, and for me, a really beautiful and humbling experience. It almost doesn't even matter what the content of the experience was, but um, I'm always struck by the repeated quality that this path, whatever we mean by this path, really is a quality of constant releasing, untraining, unlearning, just peeling off layer after layer of stuff, uh, lots of what we have accumulated in our life, uh, from our society, and how um, that is not that sense of unlearning or untraining our being is not exclusive to the meditation practice, but it's just happening all the time, really with every perception, every interaction. And certainly if you ever try to do anything meaningful, <laughs> you'll find that the universe allows for constant opportunities of letting go. And in some sense, that's why this teaching of selflessness, of working with our sense of ego, identity, self, is so essential. It's, it, almost everything comes back to it. That if we approach our meditation practice, our spiritual path, and our everyday life from the perspective of what am I going to get, how am I going to secure my experience, how is this situation going to work out for me? How is this meditation session going to be uh, ultimately of benefit? If we're, if we're thinking that way, if we're pursuing our spiritual path with that orientation, inevitably we will come to a recognition of, um, of real pain. <laughs> Happy to begin on such a cheerful <laughs> note this evening. Um, but it's just, it's just, it's just so painful to approach anything from a frightened sense of grasping. And it's, there is tremendous relief in, um, in a, a quality of letting go of, and of freedom. And we touched on that theme last, last week. So I'm refreshing our memory collectively. <laughs> And last, or the last time I spoke, two weeks ago, and I also presented some, a little bit more philosophical content last week, and I'm going to start there again tonight. So last time we spoke about these two different ways to think of the sense of self. One was a self as a substance, as an entity, an essence, a thingy, like a juicy 
core at the center of, of your Halloween candy. <laughs> um, if any of you have young kids, you'll, you're in the midst of Halloween candy madness. So Kinnan went trick-or-treating, and uh, he was a knight. Uh, so he was Sir Kay. Um, and Allie, my wife, made him this amazing homemade knight outfit out of cardboard with black um, tape like duct tape, you know, electrical tape over it, but it was amazing costume. So he was this great little black knight going from household to household, but he couldn't really walk up the stairs because he had these, like, <laughs> boots on his legs, so he had to, <laughs> we had to help him up every stair, and then he'd say trick-or-treat. So he has this huge bag of candy, and he goes home, and he's, and he's eating the candy, and um, we've done our best to remove large quantities of the candy. <laughs> Um, so he's oh, where did all the candy go? And instead, he has apples and <laughs> pretzels and raisins. And, um, but he is—he did have this experience of looking for the juicy center of a of a lollipop. You know, like some of them have a center, but they don't really have a center, right? What was there was a commercial uh, with the owl? What was it? The tootsie roll. Yeah, how does it go? What's the jingle? Yeah. Is there a jingle there? There's a jingle there. <laughs> there I don't remember the jingle. But, you know, there is a sense that we were looking for the juicy center of our Tootsie Roll or of our lollipop. And that quest for some essential nature, some identity, some true center point for ourself is, is actually more relevant than we realize. So from a philosophical perspective, a substance, a substantial view of the self or the ego um, would be that there is some true core, some essence of our being. And you hear this language all the time, and many of us use that language, like our true self. Who are we really? What is our essential nature? When it comes down to it, who am I? And all of that is referring to a substantial sense of self, a substance, self as substance. And in the um, Indian philosophical and religious traditions, this was known as what? What was the term? The self? Atman, exactly. So Atman. And almost all of the religious traditions that we now call Hinduism posited that there was a self, there was an Atman, a true me, and especially in the Advaita Vedanta, or non-dual tradition, there was the teaching that the true self, the Atman, the soul, would eventually merge or unite with the fundamental self of the universe, the truest abiding nature of the universe, which is known as Brahman. And so enlightenment or true freedom came when the individual entity, the individual soul or Atman, united with or recognized its, its inseparability from a broader, vaster, breath-like, true nature or true self. And I would suggest that many of us in the room have that view of spirituality or of the path. And that's, it's quite common. And that's a sort of substantial sense of self. And the Buddha was one of the a few teachers who came forward and said, uh-uh. <laughs> you are not going to find that soul. There is no Atman. There is no essential identity. And this was a radical claim at the time. He wasn't the only 
teach her to say it. There were others who posited a non-self uh, tradition, but um, the Buddha was probably the most uh, vociferous, loudest, most popular, and really established a whole approach to the spiritual path, not based on that essential core identity or Atman. So that substantial sense of self as a substance is in contrast to a view of the self as a process, as a dynamic, constantly changing, shifting process, like a wave in an ocean. And from this perspective, whatever we are is not something substantial or solid, but something flowing, changing, that's in process, moving all the time. And we could look at our life and affirm that there's some, some truth in that. Whoever we are is different. The, the self we are now is different than we were 10 years ago, maybe. So we left it kind of at that, affirming maybe a process sense of self over a substantial sense of self. And tonight, I, we're going to only do this kind of philosophical, nerdy stuff for a little bit, and then we're going to get shift perspectives. But while you're still fresh and I have your attention, we're going to do the hard philosophy, and then we'll, we'll be done with it. Um, so the, tonight, I want to press a little further and, and wonder, is even that process-changing sense of self really who we are? So... This could be presented in, in a t another twofold, which is a diachronic sense of self, a self that exists across time. And in that sense of self, the, the you that you were when you were a two-year-old would be the same you that you are now, would be the same you that you will be when you are 80. So that's a diachronic sense of self, a sense of self that exists across time in a continuum. And in order for that sense of self to be truly a self, it would mean that there would be something the same or identical. And this is our key word tonight, identical or identity. So some identity or something identical that would exist across that time from when you were two to when you are whatever age you are now to when you'll be 80. And according to the Buddhist teachings and some basic investigation, you can look, and, and it's really hard to find something that is the same as when you are two, when you are however old you are now, and when you will be 80. Or maybe when you were 80, I don't know. Maybe someone in the room is 82, and you look great. <laughs> <laughs> You're not 82. <laughs> um, so that sense of that sense of self is really hard to find. Any thoughts in the room of something that is exactly identical to the you when you were two years old and will be the same when you are when you're eighty? Any thoughts? Write a book. What's that? Write a book. You read a book? No, write one. Write a book. Yeah. Say more. <laughs> um, books never change. So, write a book. I see what you mean. So some kind of legacy. 
Like, Possibly. Like, if you wrote a book, then something about you, even if you died or you changed, that would remain, like, in the memory or in... All your friends are never the same. All so your... Yeah. So a book is a little easier to... Is it something a little more lasting about a good book that you write? Right. Yeah. Good. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. But is that book you? was when you wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> and, and when the sun has a massive explosion and the earth burns up and all the books and the digital libraries are destroyed and all of the cultural memory of your books are gone, what happens to the book? Depends on what. This is a book of one. Yeah, it's, it's a really, heavy, really good book. <laughs> 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 so okay, so we're here. I was going to say consciousness. Consciousness, which is a a really great answer, especially in the Indian philosophical tradition and yoga traditions. That would be exactly the response. So some kind of consciousness or awareness that is not um, not based on changing conditions. That would be the key. So consciousness that would be not based on changing conditions. So that's a great point. And then a Buddhist would respond by saying, okay, show me a consciousness that's not based on any conditions. What would that be? What would you mean by that? And there are answers. There are answers to that. So that's a great response. And yeah, so this isn't a direct response. It's something I'm bouncing around in my head, though, is thinking about temperament styles, mm-hmm. where you can take a child and they naturally are maybe more aggressive or a little bit more prone to sadness. Yeah. And you can see that throughout the development of that child into adulthood. But what that child actually becomes, that's dependent on so much outside of themselves. But you still see that little glimmer of yeah. kind of an essence of some kind. Yeah, uh, yeah but I don't know what that temperament style is and if that's something that's inherent but because you could take two identical twins similar temperament styles but raise them up in two different families and they become two different human beings right and the temperament style is the same yeah yeah so yeah. that's just in my head just no it's a that's that. a great one and and any of any of you who are either parents or have been around little kids you know kids come to this world with a with a real personality <laughs> and if you have Two kids with the same parents in very similar conditions, they're often totally different. Yeah. So you can see why, for many traditions, it was self-evident that there was reincarnation. It was just obvious that kids came into the world with a whole thingy. And then you're right, right? You see that change over time. And to some degree, our personalities change, but you really can see a trace of some real similarity. And, and like, what is that? What is that, a lot of that trace? Doing and now there's some been some unbelievable research in terms of our not just our cognition but even in our genetics in our DNA that affects personality. So I'm thinking of a study, an amazing thing happened where there were two women, two single women, who adopted children in China, and um, I don't know. A couple of uh, years went by, and someone uh, said, "Hey, you know your your daughter looks exactly like this other woman's daughter on Facebook." 
somebody knew somebody and said, hey, they look exactly the same. And so she went and looked and said, yeah, they, they really do look exactly the same. Like, not just a little the same. I go, exactly. And they got in touch. The two mothers met. And they found out that they had gotten these daughters within the same few days at the same orphanage. They didn't know each other, these two women, at all. And the orphanage had not disclosed that they were identical twins. But they had been raised for three years or something in totally different places, one in Australia, one in England, if I remember correctly. And they got the two girls together. And so they met their identical twins. And they had all of these uncanny likenesses. How they smiled, foods that they liked, ways they walked, that were clearly not through the nurture side, but were through the nature side, through something in their genetics. And this is, I find, kind of humbling to think that there are <laughs> things about us that are just woven into our DNA. Um, so, okay, something about our personalities. Oh, good. Yes? I don't, I don't know if this is, um, could be anything like what you're talking about, but uh, just this morning I was like really stunned by how much I still feel like I I replay this emotional scenario that I know for sure happened when I was like 16 months old, and I hope I I hope I'm not like it feels like it's baked in right. to my being, and um, and sometimes I've actually suspected that I, I felt this way in the womb, you know. I don't know if that's true. I just and I don't have recollections from this sixteen-month-old experience, but you know I know what happened. Yeah. And um, so I hope I'm not still coming from that place when I'm eighty, but it feels so ingrained. Great. So there are elements of our experience that are present now that refer to either events in the past or something we felt in the past. And you can recall those, and you can see how those either impinge upon or affect our experience in the present. So, um, who was it? Somebody famous said um, that the, the, the past is what? The past is never dead. It's always alive. The, the past is alive in the present. So, we could actually... It's questionable whether there is a past whether there will be a future. And yet, the only way we can account for the present is with that reference to something in the past. And there are lots of things about us in the present that are there as an effect of the past. So the past is alive with us. So there's some maybe trace or some continuity there. The publisher. The publisher. <laughs> Just go with the, your novel. So... so um, all of these are great, and they allow us to start really peeling this apart and looking at what is making, what's making up our experience. Who are we within this? What is changing? What is continuous? How much can change? And all of that is at the level of um, reflection and explanation of our ordinary or relative experience. And what the Buddha and many great teachers are trying to do is to poke us a little bit and say, well, what's really going on? We know how we experience our sense of self. 
we know we'd really like to be here. We we know we want some kind of continuity. We want to make sense of our life. We want a story that weaves us all together. But what's really going on? Who are we really? What are we really? Is there any continuity? What is it that would be continuous? What is it that changes? So these these are our questions. So a diachronic sense of self would be something that is continuous and flows over time. And the arguments that would dissect that are actually um, somewhat simple in the sense of the defining a, the self as something completely unchanging. So a self would have to be totally unchanging. And we would notice that things might be similar, patterns, but are they totally unchanging, like our personality traits, totally separate from any conditions? Or are they affected by those conditions? So you might have a really quiet child, but when they're an adult, they're really kind of boisterous. But you can see, if you know them well, you can still see that quietness. It's just that the conditions have changed. So there can be some kind of trace or some kind of effect without there necessarily being identity, something identical that has not changed in the slightest. And if you really pick at it, you'll realize that you know, no matter what you think of as con- something continuous about your experience, it still changes because the world changes. Your body changes, that Donald Trump wasn't the president when you were two. <laughs> and, the, and if the fact that Donald Trump is the president now, did you know Donald Trump is the president? <laughs> he is. And so if Donald Trump is the president now, and if that has any effect on you, your body, your personality, in some way, that means that something is changing in you, in your personality, in some way. So that means that even if there's some trace of similarity, some pattern, some continuity, it's affected by the world in some way. We are constantly affected in in some form. There's waves, there's ripples of change happening all the time. The president, the economy, the weather, the, the state of your health, your body, your finances, the spaces you're in. I mean, we can go down to the very instant of recognizing that the person you were when I began my talk is different now. There's been some change, some effect, some difference, some ripple. That's kind of uncanny. That, If you really follow that thought, that's bizarre. What does that mean? That you are not the person who was listening to my talk at the beginning of my talk. I am not the person who began my talk. Inertia. <laughs> Inertia is a good possibility for a self. Because you're either moving already or you're stuck. Right. And you're both inert. That's right. So the self is just inertness. Well, it's yeah. oscillation between the two states. <laughs> it seems like there's a possibility here from like semantic games. Like, how we define a self is what's removing the possibility of self. Like, if you replace song that has more than one note in it, it sounds like this Buddha might say, well, that's not the same song. It was A here, and now it's B. 
those are different songs, but like the composer would say, no, those are called notes. This is a song. It involves a lot of notes. Yes. So like, could the self be something like a song? No, but the self, <laughs> but, the self but the self could be the linguistic category song. And that's what you're really getting at. Mm. So there is no song, but the, the, exactly it is a semantic game, which is that the only thing that the self is, according to the Buddha, is the naming of it and saying, it's this, I am this. So it is about semantics. You're absolutely right. But where is the song? If it's just an A and then a D flat and a B and then a... Or the music I listen to is just all A. <laughs> it's a whole song. <laughs> Buddha would like that. Buddha would love... Yeah. No, I'd like that the Dantons would like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but do you see what I mean? Because you're absolutely right that that there is a linguistic game going on here. We're saying that in, we're defining self as that which is totally independent, unchanging, and absolutely identical. And that is absurd. But the point is, is we really think that that's what's going on. That's when it gets interesting. And that will, this is going to help us get out of the philosophy into something a little bit more maybe experiential. <laughs> Chad, who's this guy who's back <laughs> That is actually what the talk is about. <laughs> All right. So, okay. Diachronic sense of self is fairly easy to see. There's not a lot of there there. It's hard to find anything in our experience that is never affected by any conditions, that is totally separate from, in the Buddhist language, the aggregates. And there's a series of philosophical arguments about it that are probably irrelevant, but um, the way it would look would be something like this. If you would say, there is a real self that is happening, there's a juicy center of me, consciousness, there's a true consciousness that is happening Throughout all of my experience, even when everything else is changing, there's still that juicy center, right? Everyone with me? Then that's the juicy center is really me. Everything else is changing. I'm getting older. Donald Trump is the president. Someone else is the president. There are no presidents. The world changes, but there's something continuous. That continuity, that sense of self, consciousness, Atman, soul, real me, if that has if that doesn't change based on the conditions of your experience, changing body, changing politics, changing time, if that doesn't change at all, then what relationship does it have to you? I mean, why is that? Why would that consciousness have any value, meaning, what would it be if it didn't even, couldn't even, like, taste food, feel emotions, contact experience? What is that ghost in the machine? And why would it have any relevance if it was totally disconnected from and untouched by any experience? If, it, if that juicy center, if that consciousness or essence didn't change and wasn't affected at all by Donald Trump being the president, then 
what is it? Why, why would that have any any impact on a life? Yeah, I mean, it seems that the, the naming of the self is always relational in some way, right? Mm-hmm. So that I may be not me, but I'm also not somebody else. You know, there's that self and other as, mm-hmm. as just sort of a, a starting point, yeah. as well as, you know, animate, inanimate, and you can go from there. So it's a way of organizing and categorizing relationship. That's right. That's right. And it gets to the point about the song. It's a semantic category. It's a naming. And actually the Buddha said, what is the self? It is the thing that is saying, I am. It's actually the narrativizing process, the naming process. So the other kind of self here is not the diachronic, but it's the synchronic self. And what that means is a sense of something identical that might be just identical right now, an identity, a true self that's right now, and then there might be another one, another true self, the next moment. This is getting to be kind of more on the analytical side of things. It has a little bit less experiential tone to it. But that's the other argument you could make for a self. Well, there might, be, there might not be a juicy center that continues across time. But in any given moment, if you look carefully, there's something that is really me. And that might even disappear, but then it will be again in the next moment. And there, so there are arguments for a self that are momentary, that are coming in and out of existence. What if I, what if I ask you this, say, I say, okay, there's no juicy side here, I agree. And certainly what I was five minutes ago and certainly five years ago was different, maybe a little different, certainly different. Yeah. But what if I say the self is this whole thing? What if I say, no, it's not constant, it changes over time. And that's the self. It's this, if you will, packet that was delivered of a mother some X years ago and was crawling on the floor and then walking and then talking and then having opinions and then getting, getting in trouble and then finding, finally finding their way to blah, blah. So, And is there a part of your body that is the same person that was crawling on the floor? Uh, there's no part of my body that's identical, but some of my DNA is probably identical. The pattern of the DNA. The pattern of the DNA almost certainly is, even though the specific items in the DNA probably are not in the same way that a river, say for example, right. you think of a packet of water flowing through, but unless that flow is laminar, there's no packet of water. That's right. Yes. So that would mean that there wouldn't be anything the same. No, I would agree with that. Right. But what I'm saying is, I'm saying that this changing thing is a self. Yes. That's right. There is a self. Yes. If you define a self as something that can change, which would not be a self. (laughs) Okay. That's a definitional issue, but yes. It is, but that's that's the key point is that it, at first it seems like this is crazy, right? Why, why would you say that there must be a self? Or why would you define a self as something that couldn't possibly exist? And this is, this is what a lot of the debates came down to, is what do you want to define the self as? So if we all agree that whatever we mean by self is something that is continually changing, and that there's nothing about it that's identical or the same, then we're great. 
which is useful for legal documents, but (laughs) (laughs) I think the point here is that the self only exists by definition. Exactly. So that by making it such a stupid, not stupid, but very, like, impossible to achieve definition, you drive the debate to exactly that point where they say, that's a stupid definition. He goes, yeah, but... More or less. Yeah. Okay, that's awesome. Yep. <laughs> so, in a moment, don't, don't worry, in a moment we're going to actually look at why does any of this matter at all. Yeah. I was just going to ask about uh, kind of rate of change in all of this, uh, because, you know, even if I'm going through some extraordinary period of change, when I wake up tomorrow, I'm enough of myself from yesterday that I can sort of get my bearings and get out of bed and make coffee and go on with my day. Right. But when there are the schisms, you know, mm-hmm. through that, that, you know, the, that rate of change increases and I only have, a, you know, maybe less than 50% of what I did yesterday. Um, then we recognize those things. I mean, it could be through, I don't know, physical trauma, emotional trauma, or yeah. some other, you know, extreme experience. So there is, there's got to be a tipping point where that rate then um, determine, makes it such that others can say, well, he's really different today. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So does that play into it in some fashion? Yeah, I think experientially it does. And, and that feeling of some kind of break or something um, not discontinuous is unnerving and challenging. And maybe other people will notice it if there's a rate of change that's faster, um, it could be appreciated right, right, yeah, as well. Yeah. So maybe this is a great opportunity to, to, to pivot to the next step here. So now you're no longer fresh and present, and I don't have your attention, so we can move on to the rest of the talk. Um, yeah, please. In terms of speaking experientially, I wanted to speak to this kind of discontinuity of our own consciousness, which is really interesting. And the game that I played with... Sawyer that she absolutely hates me for, which is just like, you know, we take it on good advice from those around us and from the sort of internal checklist that when we wake up, we're the same person that went to sleep. But that's just beyond reasonable doubt. There's absolutely no certainty, by which I mean there's no way to prove that that's the case. <coughs> which is, I mean, Perhaps some of the point of this that we're walking around with this backpack of assumptions. It's like, no, I'm, I'm me because my wife recognizes me. Because when I show up here, people look at me and, right? Yeah. Or like now, like when I hold up my phone, it, it checks out. Right. Like I'm still me. Yeah. And what but, if people didn't? And what if suddenly, right? Then would you, what would happen to our own kind of like, Again, this, this um, I mean, it's really kind of paper-thin certainty yeah. in many ways. Um, or if you woke up somewhere strange without any memories, right? Yeah. So we have these interesting kind of, what do they call them? Um, fringe cases or something like that. It's like, well, fugues. Right, fugues, all sorts of sort of fringe cases. Where it's, okay, well, yeah. are you you? And when you yeah. come back, are you, you know, and... Yeah, and I was thinking similarly of this um, moments of disruption. How many of you have had an experience where you woke up and you did not know where you were, who you were, what was going on? And anyone? Right? So, very strange, right? <laughs> to wake up and just really like, where am I and who am I? 
What room am I in? You might have a general sense that I'm still me, but who is that? And they can, it, that can last just a short moment of time. And it's very, very strange. The question here is, what is it that suddenly kicks into gear that then starts to retell the story of, oh, this is who I am. I have this name. I'm in this place. This is what I'm going to do today. And then everything kind of fits back together. But for a moment, there was a gap, right? For a moment, there was a, I don't know. Okay. From the experiential perspective, the me, the sense of self, is very much that process of re-establishing and renaming ourself as me, as I. Now, why does this matter? Why is this meaningful on the spiritual journey, on meditation path? Well, as we spoke about the last time, it is this very sense of self and I that is the most challenging to work with. Because the sense of self is a narrativizing process, is something that's naming itself, trying to hold itself together. Its job is the work of saying, I'm here, of claiming a sense of self in relationship to the world. I'm here, the world is there. There's self, there's other. I'm the perceiver, out there is the perceived. And in terms of meditation practice, this shows up as the sense of, um, really wanting things to work out for ourselves in life and on the path. Why is this problem? Because things don't work out for ourselves in our life or on our path. There's a kind of simple statement. I'll just say it again. <laughs> the reason it's a problem that there is something in us that is constantly, its job is to try to make things work out for ourselves, to defend, to protect, to hold, to sustain, to try to have a continuity, to constantly be saying, I am here. The reason that's a problem is because it's constantly trying to make things work out for ourselves, and things do not work out for ourselves, will not work out for ourselves, and cannot work out for ourselves. Wonderful things happen. Beautiful relationships, children, beautiful communities, connections, moments of great bliss, joy, pleasure, love. But what does it mean for things to work out completely, come together, completely, you know, protect us, seal the deal, finally have arrived? Anyone been to that place? Has that happened yet? Where it's like all now, it's okay, it's all, you got it. It didn't last. What's that? It didn't last. Yeah. There's something more. There's always something more. Yeah. So, seemingly silly, simple point, but what if this all this philosophical nonsense about the true self and a diachronic self and a. What if. 
What that really means in our life is a kind of basic delusion or a basic repeated pattern and process that keeps tricking us. That we, even if we're not philosophers and we don't wake up in the morning and think, hmm, I am a synchronic self, <laughs> which no one does. Even philosophers don't think that. They think, where's my coffee? <laughs> so it's not like we have a, 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 a philosophical concept of the problem. The problem is a basic orientation towards reality that at its most fundamental nature is completely diluted. It, it's not happening. And yet, working so hard, our poor little ego is working so hard to constantly sustain itself, to keep the story going, to make sure there's a sense of identity, to, to try to protect. And this is, this is where the story gets so sad, because it's, it's, it's unnecessary, all that exhausting work of maintaining, of solidifying, of holding. It actually doesn't, it's not, there isn't anything happening there other than the exhausting work of that self-holding, that self-grasping. That is what the self is, is that exhausting work. You are an exhausting, ongoing work. I am an exhausting, ongoing work. How is that happening? Well, for me right now, there's all sorts of things happening. I'm talking. I'm trying to present an idea. I'm checking to notice, is this going well? Is this not going well? Does Richard John like my talk? <laughs> I don't know. Has Richard John ever heard my any, any talks? Does he think this is what all my, all my talks are? Is this a helpful talk? Am I doing it right? Am I good enough? Am, um, am, I, am, am I taking too long? Is the, are the words I'm saying right now part of my talk, who is the one talking right now? And we're living our life constantly without looking back in and checking, right? So constantly negotiating, looking, trying to make sense of it, trying to do it well, checking, looking around, is it, is it going well? Am I safe? That activity is the self, is the ego. And it's exhausting. It's always working and striving to hold and maintain. And, and it is not. Right? What is the title of today's talk, Holly? Something like... You are not. You are not. Okay, good. So that's why. It's not simply that you're not an ongoing process or you're a, not a substance or you're not a soul. It's that the very pattern of activity that is listening to this talk right now, that's trying to understand what I'm saying, that's perceiving sound and making sense of it, is simply that ongoing work of self-maintenance. And when that ongoing work of self-maintenance, of labeling, of checking, of noticing, of perceiving, of weaving itself into a story, when that takes over what our meditation practice is, we're, we're, oh, we're screwed. To say that more simply, when the thinking process is doing the meditating, we're locked into a, a looping cycle that doesn't allow any rest. 
there's no rest because it's the exhausting work has sucked meditation practice into its exhausting work, which we experience when we meditate as this kind of movement. All right, I'm trying to think, am I doing it right? Am I meditating? Am I on the breath? Is this happening? Am I distracted? Oh, I'm at peace. But wait, if I'm noticing I'm at peace, who is that thought? Am I thinking that I'm peaceful? Right, that is this self-narrativizing, ongoing, exhausting work of the self. So, this is valuable as meditators because we have to find a way to practice that is true rest. That is a kind of openness that is not sucked into that ongoing self-narrativizing narrativizing pattern. Why is this valuable in terms of our everyday life? Well, you can eat a bowl of cornflakes without that exhausting work. You can drive your car. You can walk. You can live a life. You can have, you can listen. You can have relationships without that ongoing exhausting work. In other words, there's some kind of fundamental orientation that drives us that Trungpa Rinpoche calls self-deception. Self-deception. It's like a magician that has done such an amazing magic trick that they forgot that they created an illusion. And the magician makes this amazing display. And there's people floating, and there's scary monsters, and this is the most amazing illusion ever. Better than David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty disappear. Which is probably the best thing that's ever happened. That this would be even better than that. There's this incredible illusion. And at some point, the magician forgot that it's just an illusion. And they remain for the rest of eternity in that state. So that's where we are right now. <laughs> We're, we are in the midst of that. And so it's very difficult in the midst of that to try to find a way through a spiritual path, a meditation practice, anything that actually would be completely free of that. So the you are not is, is your precious kind of cue. It's the, it's the secret that's being whispered in the midst of that dream, in that illusion. So when the Buddha says, no self, we often hear that as, well, well then who am I? Or, that must mean be selfless, like don't take the last piece of cornbread, give it to the next person. That's not what selflessness is, although that's my, what might be what the action of it is. Selflessness is literally that the entirety of your experience right now is not happening. And all of the efforting, the, that exhausting work that is maintaining this experience 
could rest, could cease, could be a flame that is blown out. And that's what cessation is. That's called nirvana. Nirvana does not mean that you get to go to this awesome place with Kurt Cobain. <laughs> nirvana means that the whole illusion that we're living within is released, is opened up. And when there's the teaching that nirvana is here, is present, what that means is that that rest is available fully, completely, all the time. Because that exhausting work is actually unnecessary. And a, an example from last week, um, or the last time I taught, that Trungpa Rinpoche gave was this ego is defined or could be understood as this longing to be a witness at our own funeral. Right? Or to be there when we attain enlightenment. But of course, the, the truth of this is, is we don't get to attain enlightenment. It's just that the illusion of the whole thing fades. So... The last note I want to leave you, leave you with tonight is that the, you can't think your way through this. You can't fight your way to this place. There's no effort or work that you or I can do to make any of this happen. And it is completely hopeless. And that hopelessness, if you feel that, if you, if you can be with that hopelessness, it can feel so sad, like a real sadness, a real tenderness of like, what do I do? What if there's nothing I have to do? And that can feel so, just this sadness of, of nothing to be done. And that sadness is what allows us to soften enough that this exhausting work and start to um, find real relief, real rest, and real freedom. So we can't work our way towards the end of our work. And eventually there's a kind of tender exhaustion. And tonight I made an interesting choice to, to try to perform that exhaustion. Um, and see if we could almost like just in the feeling of it, just, just be completely exhausted and realize that there is some opportunity for rest. It's always here, always available. Jeff? Um, it sounds a lot like emptiness. Is it what you're saying also a description of? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that what is what does emptiness mean for you? Well, I think of like the heart sutra and you know, the mind and the body. Um 
and yeah, just a sense of spaciousness. Um, where like the story falls away and just that sense of self relativity. Exactly. It just sounded like that. It just, it just like you're talking about like emptiness. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Do you do you like emptiness? I think I do. Not <laughs> often though. <laughs> But right now you're liking it. I'm digging it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I think that's great. There's no way to think oneself, oneself out, or to act oneself out, or to work oneself out. My first thought is always when this sort of like thing is proposed. Why meditate? Why practice at all? Uh, if that's just as useless as pursuing the life of great wealth and hedonism, why not pursue a life of great wealth and hedonism and realize that way, oh, I never got it. Like, I never hit the thing. Um, and then the next move seems to be like, well, meditation has these other benefits. Like, you know, it like lowers my blood pressure and like makes me more peaceful and makes me a better worker. And it's like, that sounds really familiar. Well, that's spiritual materialism. So why not spiritual materialism then? Um, and then I wonder, maybe the point of like calling out spiritual materialism and trying to cut through it is maybe to try to like, okay, you're here. I can leverage you into real rest. Is that? I only hit that thought as I was talking to you. Mm-hmm. But there was a question that I had. Who is leveraging you into real rest? Toby and Trump for Then that's okay then. <laughs> as long as you're not leveraging yourself into into true rest. If Trump for is, is, then. Is the guru other than me? <laughs> I mean, are you really asking that question? Uh, so, sort of, actually, yeah. Because um, there's another question that is like sort of I didn't mean to ask, but is getting tied up in here, which is we talk about this, but then there's also that idea of basic goodness and the self-existing, right? And that to me doesn't seem like this. That's next week's talk, <laughs> and and that's why I've chosen to do it in these three parts. Is 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 um, all of us, and I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of myself as a teacher, all of us in Shambhala, everyone, I think, in the modern Buddhist world, we want to move too quickly to that space of, oh, but there's still basic goodness, or it's all going to work out in the end. And I really, tonight, I'm really leaving us. It is not going to work out in the end. And this is, there is truly, there's no way out of this. So yes, you might as well be a hedonist. <laughs> this for week. At least until next talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This might be next week too, but it seems like well, there's no way out of this. Well, then so what? Great. Does that feel like the rest? 
I mean, I can't speak to that rest that you're referring to, but I would say that it does feel like rest. Yeah. So, and that's important. That's part of this sadness is it's not, it's, it's even, it's too simple to say, well, if meditation doesn't work, I'll just be a hedonist. Because we also know that hedonism doesn't work either, right? That's it's terrible. So it's neither this nor that. And there, therefore, there's rest. So if it's neither this nor that, that can feel like entrapment, like panic, like hell, samsara. But if it's neither this nor that, it could also feel like, well, then maybe I just don't need to keep working so hard. <coughs> and there, then there's that rest. And what is it that's resting? It's right. It's not we get a rest. It's the very self-driving process that's going to rest. In trying to understand what you said, I no longer feel restful. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll take um, just two or three more. Yeah. My question, I think, kind of relates to Corey's, and that my question was going to be about well. What, why form then? Form is sort of the thing that, why is there so much emphasis on form and sort of studying practice, whatever form is sort of one of the skandhas that like is holding all of this together? Yeah. And is so much of the narrativization of like sitting practice, right? Like, are my hands in the right place? But then toward the end of the talk, as, and Toward the end of the talk, whenever you're talking about exhaustion, it's like perhaps form provides space for exhaustion, right? Like eventually, like you get like mm, it's, it's beautiful. Just there. Yeah, really so beautiful. So I think I answered my question. Yeah, perhaps, but is that <laughs> that's really great, really beautiful? So form provides space for exhaustion or for rest. Right. And and what's that? But is that false? <laughs> Um, I don't think so. Not the way you're describing it. And immediately I'm thinking about um, in the great Zen master Dogen, Zenji, who talked about practice does not lead to enlightenment. Meditation practice doesn't get us to enlightenment. The practice is the enlightenment. Right? It's the performance. Again, the word form, performance. The performance of that rest looks like a person meditating in this posture. Right? So when we give meditation instruction, or when you give meditation instruction to someone, you're actually saying, rest. This is what it looks like to rest. And everyone thinks, well, I have to try really hard, and I'm going to do all these practice for hours. And it's just actually an invitation to say, just try, try this. It's like within this nightmare of the constant exhausting work, again, there's this kind of whisper of, like, just, just sit, just sit. And you find that that true rest. Yeah. So you could say, well, it doesn't matter. You don't have to meditate. And it doesn't. It's true. On some level. Yeah. Yeah. Or hanging out. You really relax me. <laughs> One more hand? Yeah, okay, two more. So when we're talking about neither this nor that, just rest, 
the thought that came to my mind was like just go with the flow instead of trying to push and pull all different directions. That's, that's what it occurred to me. Yeah. You might be saying. Yeah, it feels like that, right? Just go with the flow. And I think for the sake of our talk tonight, just to be a jerk, what we would say would be there's no you that gets to go with the flow. Right. There's just there's just that flow, which is really cool because I mean you don't have to do a special extra thing to go with the flow because it's just flow, like a old lady named Flo. It's, it's, it's like all there is in the universe. That was my grandma's name. Yeah, that's I have, it. I have a friend my grandma. <laughs> Um, I was going to backtrack and make a comment about the emptiness idea, but that what, what you were talking about, experientially, you relaxed me also. The more you talked about there being nothing and, and the cessation of, of work, you lost the perpetual suffering. The, the more my body relaxed, and, um, and yeah, so that sitting, you know, the, the proper meditation position enables me to relax if, I'm, if, I, can, if I can get there. Yeah. Um, but um, <coughs> when you talked about emptiness, my, my first thought was it doesn't feel like that to me and all that came to my mind is that I have this deck of Zen tarot cards and they're beautifully illustrated and really colorful but there's one card that is like one the, it's not the most major one but it's a really major one and it's just black and it's called no things not nothing is but no things that that is like a huge relief to me yeah. Yeah, amazing, right? That something that could be so frightening could could be a, could be a relief. And this is dangerous, right? And I there's some of you in the room I don't know so well, so most of you I I know, and so I'm pushing in a certain direction. But it's really important to say that that feeling of no thingness or nothingness or total blankness that can that can be frightening and it can lead to a kind of despair or a nihilism or I'm just giving up. And what we're working with here is just almost this possibility that that kind of vastness or space or rest or non-doing or no thingness is quite beautiful. Quite quite beautiful. But as soon as we make it into the, the beautiful thing that's now we, what we want, then we're back in the loop again. What about the other side, which is the paradoxical aspect of the whole thing, which is that there's a fullness. So earlier we were talking about defining ourselves as, as other than, than others, but you can also define yourself, and I kind of grew up this way as the community of the world you live in your heart, you know, where you, you don't feel yourself as just a total individual, you know, yeah. not that self. And the whole idea that everything, the flow of the universe flowing through you, whether that you as one of processes. Yeah. And there's a paradoxical quality within nothing that's also a fullness. 
Yes. And I'm just springing it up. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just being really terrible tonight. And I know, I'm just bringing it up because... <laughs> yeah. And that, the, I think the, the experiential um, quality of that fullness is that it's only available to us when we're completely at rest in that emptiness. Or when it's identical to that emptiness. Could you say just a word about how this is not nihilism? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nihilism is a um, is an established position, an idea, um, a concept, an ideology, a dogma, a, a certainty, a way of seeing the world, a way of securing the ego. Right? It's not rest. It's just that rather than rest, um, the ego is constantly saying nothing matters, nothing is important, I'm not really here, it doesn't really matter anyway, I might as well go eat a steak, um, you know, I might as well, you know, whatever, it doesn't really matter, it's all meaningless. It's running a story, it's like running a loop, and it's a way that ego secures itself with a very clear identity. And it leads to wardrobe choice, music choice, fingernail color. You know, it's like a whole set of things that arises from it. Political perspectives. And so it's, that's great, but it's, it's still within that constant work, right? And the same would be true of the other side of like, everything is great. It's all going to work out. The world is love. It's all beautiful. It's all basically good. Um, if I just stay optimistic, we're going to make everything great. I'm really here. I love myself. I love you. You love me. We're a happy family. Like that's all a lot of work to maintain that view. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So freedom from grasping at either it's all great or it's all terrible could be some, some real rest. This is probably next week, but I hear you saying that some of this is more experiential than thinking. Exactly. The only real job of Buddhist philosophy is to just make the thinking seem so absurd that eventually you just don't worry about it so much. And then what happens? So then how it does... Buddhism and Shambhala negotiate with social justice and making a difference in the community if by doing that you're just upholding your ego and doing that in some ways. That's the part that I'm grappling with. I think it, it, just to continue with our themes for this evening, this very simple answer to that is this you really get the feeling of how much work and struggle and fighting and agitation and self-clinging that is happening all around you, within you, Ourself, in our economic <clears throat> structures, in the speed of our everyday life, in the way that we're relating to the planet, in the way that political dialogue is taking place, the way our workplaces feel, the way we push our kids, the way the prison industrial complex works, the, the disparity and violence of economic injustice, of racism. It's a lot of work 
It's a ton of exhausting, ongoing, repeated habituation that is brutal. And so, from just from the perspective of tonight, social justice or changing the world means this this tenderness, this sadness of just of wanting to heal everywhere, everything, including within our own being, of, of allowing a kind of naturalness or flow or rest to pervade this world. Uh, our families, our home, our relationship with each other, with our friends. So what seems to be nihilistic could be tremendously human or, um, and full of real power to change. You know, it's like water that, you know, carves a canyon. Isn't that, didn't that come up with Alex saying Alex exactly that? Tears, yeah. Do you want to just say something about that moment? Or? Yeah, sure. Just um, experiencing incredible pain, but through that strength um, of someone that we spent the weekend with, of being like, no, actually, water wears away the solidity of rock. Um, and that actually is incredibly um, powerful and like soft and gentle. Does that ring true for you in some way? I think so, yeah. I think it's just hard to tell in terms of like actually practically in action because there are moments where I think for myself what I'm doing is out of care and out of love. Like for my mentees and my students. That feels pure and real and I'm making a difference there. But then it's it's hard to tell when then you're doing an action because you're feeling angry. Right. And then you spur more anger. Yeah. And it's hard to find that. That's so fine. hard. Yeah. So hard. And so what if this, the theme for our, tonight, this you are not, this this rest, what if that became your, your guide? What if that became the level by which you measure an action? To what degree it's kind of part of that release, that unlearning, that resting, that uh, and there's a certain healing quality of it. And I'm not saying that's always the answer, right? There are a lot of different kinds of action. And anger and intensity and dynamism and fierceness and power is definitely valid. And, um, you know, but, but again, I'm just bringing us into the, the themes and feeling of this evening. I think it's, I think it's a resource for activists and for engagement that is often untapped. And that when you're like, when you witness someone like a, I don't know, for me, Nelson Mandela in particular comes to mind. There's this quality of such ease and like simplicity, like he's at rest. And what does that mean for when we're with our mentees or when we're looking at systemic patterns? So I think sometimes I think we should change the language instead of creating a enlightened society, we should change it to something like resting into a enlightened society. Or finally allowing for enlightened society to just show itself. Beautiful note. I want to end on something. We have a little bit of time, but we've done a lot of talking. And what I want is to give you some chance, a chance for some space and some silence um, while we've evoked this quality of you are not. So that's it. That's all there is. Um, thank you. And if you are more confused about who you are than <laughs> when you first came, then it's great. <laughs> <laughs>